Hello, Legends. Before we get into the episode, I just want to quickly tell you about a brand new show that I have just released. It's called Crime at Bedtime. And as the name suggests, it's been designed with those in mind who like to go to sleep at night listening to a fascinating true crime story. We'll release a brand new episode every single Monday, but right now there is a stack of episodes for you to binge straight away. So go check it out. It's called Crime at Bedtime. It's available wherever you get your podcasts from. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'd like to warn listeners that today's episode contains subject matter that some people may find distressing. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome back to One Minute Remaining. My name is Jack Lawrence, the host and creator of this show. As you know, from time to time, I like to give a shout out to other podcasts that I think you might enjoy. Today's shout out, though, is a bit different as I sit down to interview the show's host. Because the man behind the mic of the Australian podcast, The Stick Up, is Russell Manser. Hey, Jack. Here he is. How are you, man? Been a while. It has, mate. It has. How's things? Yeah, really good, really good. Just um, doing a bit of work, taking the dog for a walk. and um, He's a former notorious bank robber who spent decades in and out of the Australian prison system across multiple states before he would leave his life of crime behind to start his own charity, a charity to help people like himself, survivors of abhorrent institutional abuse. Saturday evening, September 14th, 1828, Sydney, Australia. Lower George Street is all quiet. The Bank of Australia sits in darkness. Just next door is the Keep Within Compass Hotel, where five men have been busy at work for weeks underneath the building inside a sewer drain. This drain runs from the hotel right under the bank, and more importantly, directly under the bank's vault. It turns out that during construction of the bank's vault, they would make one fatal mistake. The man they had employed to construct the basement strongroom was convict stonemason Thomas Turner. Coincidentally, Mr Turner had also worked on the sewer drain, so was well aware of the drain running below the basement. And this, it would appear, was a temptation too impossible to resist. Turner gathered together a team of ex-cons, including John Creighton, a man who had been the slater employed to lay the floor of the strongroom. Also on that team was a blacksmith who would forge special tools for this job. Every Saturday for several weeks, the men entered the drain and would hack away at the five-foot-thick floor until eventually 
they broke through in the early hours of the 15th. Climbing into the vault, they began to remove cash box after cash box and would escape with £14,000 in cash and gold, the equivalent of $20 million in today's money. This was the first ever bank robbery committed in Australia. The first of many committed in the country. And over 100 years before Russell Manser would rob his first bank. But more on that very soon. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. How would you like to look 5 years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking 5 years younger at 6 months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Russell, thanks, mate, for, for coming in and having a chat with us. I appreciate it. Um, Obviously, you know, you grew up in the western suburbs of Sydney uh, in the 80s. Uh, yeah. For those of the people who aren't from Australia, can you sort of talk us through what life was like in the western suburbs around that time? Sure. You know, I grew up in a place called Mount Druitt and um, they say it's not the end of the earth, but you can see it from there. And um, um, it's a low socioeconomic area. It's um, government housing project, housing, housing commission, call it what you will. And uh, we had a fibro house with an asbestos roof and it was freezing cold in the winter and boiling hot in the summer. And you really, I know, I've grown up in saunas, basically. And um, whether it be a prison cell or a housing commission house or, um, or a sauna itself. So, yeah, the people there were factory workers, tradesmen at best. And, and you know, tradesmen back in them days weren't on the money that they're on now. Tradesmen were on professional, they're more money than doctors and that in a lot of these cases, but they weren't. I was like... 
It was like, you know, one of those things, if you if you went to year 10, got your year 10 certificate and you went on to get a trade, you were one of the lucky ones and not everyone got that. And, um, you know, a lot of the people I looked up to were, were criminals because, you know, they looked like they were having the time of their lives drop. You know, they weren't, it took my parents three years to pay off a $3,000 car, you know, and I didn't want to be in that battle. That didn't look like too much fun to me, but, you know, I'd see these, Guys come home from prison and then uh, within, you know, within a week or two, they've got the flash car, the, all the flash stuff and that, you know, and um, and always the whispers were they were bank robbers. And, you know, that's what I aspired to be, a bank robber. I thought they were the people who I looked up to, unfortunately. So unlike a lot of the stories that we hear, Russell actually came from a very law-abiding family. The youngest of six kids, Russell says he was the black sheep of the family as none of the other siblings found themselves getting into trouble. He remembers seeing the factory workers up at the bus stops during the early hours of the morning, shivering and looking depressed. A future that was almost mapped out for him. But he wanted more. Unfortunately, though, the people he looked up to as the ones with more were criminals. That was sort of mapped out for me, or that's the way my life was going to go. And, and, I, and I had other plans in my life. And, you know, and I was thinking big from a young age. I was thinking, I want to own the factory, the one next to it, and the block of flats across the road. You know, and, and, and back in them days, you were, you were smacked in the head for being a dreamer, you know what I mean? Now it's like, fucking, it's all about fucking, yeah, they, I, people will back you with that sort of stuff. And um, so, you know, see these blokes come home from prison being treated like return war heroes and, um, and I wanted to be like them. I wanted to be the hero. I wanted to be the someone. I didn't want to be that bloke at the bus stop of the morning shivering his guts out looking miserable and that, that didn't look great, you know what I mean? I wanted to be a bloke wearing a flash clothes, driving a flash car, having a time of my life, you know, and, um, you know, and I, I gravitated towards those sort of people. I started doing, you know, minor crimes, stealing cars. It could have ended there if it hadn't been for him and a friend stealing a ute and becoming involved in a police chase and eventually crashing the car. Back in those days, they never had the um, diversion programs that they had today. It was like one strike, you're out, straight yeah. to the boys' home. And, um, and I went to the notorious Derek boys' home, which was the subject of a, a, a 60 minute story about the prolific sexual and physical abuse that was taking place there. And, um, you know, and I didn't escape it. You know, I was sexually abused there. I tried to report it and, um, and that only amplified it. Derek Boy's home has been called a pedophile's paradise. It was a house of horrors for school-aged kids who were considered juvenile offenders. Run with a very military-style discipline. However, it didn't stop there. Kids were punished by being abused punched, slapped and sexually abused by the staff. Much like in Russell's situation, many of the boys being abused would attempt to report the abuse, but this would only lead to it becoming worse. A breakthrough in a major police investigation means a number of men accused of dreadful physical and sexual crimes against teenagers should be expecting a visit from detectives very soon. It's good news, finally, for the many victims of the notorious Derek Boy's home at Windsor, northwest of Sydney. At one point, Russell had decided he would escape and return home to tell his parents what was going on. Sadly, however, when Russell made it home, he discovered his father was gravely ill and would decide to keep the abuse to himself. His parents would take him back to the boys' home. Well, you know, my home was only like 10 kilometres away from the boys' home I was in, so I ran all the way home and then um, I got home and my dad was really sick with emphysema at the time, you know, and he was, 
he just didn't look well. And I thought, you know, if I tell him this, it'll actually kill him, you know. And um, so I sort of, I made a decision to keep them myself. I made a decision to keep them myself for a long time. I never spoke about that for a long time after it. But um, they took me back to the boys' home. The abuse, sexual abuse and physical abuse was amplified. They kicked it off because they wanted to teach me a lesson. It was all about... They, you know, they'd sexually abuse you and, and punish you and tell you, you know, it was all about punishment. And that'll teach you a lesson for stealing cars. You won't want to steal cars no more and stuff like that. And uh, it was a pretty twisted place to be. And um, I, I don't understand. I look at photos of my son when he was 14, 15, and I just thought, you know, I used to look and think, how could anyone do that to a child? And here's these full-grown men doing it. I, you know, I'd like to see the times have changed, but they haven't. While at the boys' home, Russell, instead of being discouraged from a life of crime, would in fact hone his criminal skills by learning from others. I got to associate with kids that were more advanced in their criminal behaviour than I was, you know what I mean? People that, the kids that have been to the direct boys' home four or five times and their offending behaviour escalated. And um, so, you know, I jumped on that wave and I learned how to still work. But I come home and I was never... I was never a kid that really smoked pot or anything like that because of you know my dad had emphysema and I was I never I was never I never gravitated to smoking cigarettes or anything like that because of that the smoking aspect to it. But you know I remember one day um, walking through the local underpass and um, and uh, there was a bloke smoking pot and, he, and all he had to do was say something to me and he said have one of these it'll make you feel better and that's all I needed to hear and I had one. And I, I had two and then I had three and I started smoking pot. I'm not going to say for me pot was a gateway drug for me because it wasn't. I don't believe in that bullshit. I don't believe in that. The drug that you find is that's the gateway and, and pot wasn't mine, you know what I mean? Um, but I, I was numbing myself and, um, you know, becoming – I went from that kid that gets up at 6 o'clock in the morning and's up and about and out in the streets to a kid that was sleeping at 12 o'clock at that, uh, of a daytime and – had no direction, but um, you know, I was over night time. I was going out. And I started stealing Porsches, and on one on one occasion, I stole a, a nine thirty twin turbo Porsche from a rural affluent area, and I got in a police chase. But uh, you know, it was the first time in New South Wales that they used a police helicopter to uh, for a car chase because there was a series of uh, kids breaking out of the boys' homes and and, and stealing Porsches. And um, and going on wild rides, police chases, and, and sticking their fingers up the police, and even pulling them out front of police stations and revving them until they come out and chase them and they get them on. So they wanted to prove a point. And um, you know, uh, unfortunately, you know, the, the first time I'm in a Porsche, we got chased by a helicopter. So Russell is back in front of the judge, but this time the sentence will be far more harsh. Went before Bajura Children's Court, and you know, we had, and, and, and it was the beginning of my distrust of lawyers, you know, so. I had this lawyer and he said, plead guilty and you'll get six months in the boys' home, you know. At that stage, there's a different boys' home called Mount Penang because I was over 16 at this stage. And I was up near Gosford on the central coast of New South Wales and um, and uh, I'd heard bad things about that place, but, you know, and there was no mention of prison. There was no mention. Anyway, so the judge sentences. He said, I'm going to sentence you to 12 months, which at the time we thought was pretty hard. And then he stipulated, he said, that's to be served and an adult prison to deter you from future reoffending. And um, and he sort of made a comment about how dare uh, a boy from, uh, you know, a place like Mount Drua come to an affluent area and steal a car. It was like a class crime, you know. So with the stealing the cars, it wasn't about money. You weren't selling them. and It was purely just uh, the adrenaline rush and all the rest of it that went with that, just to, you know, something. Yeah, it was having fun. Yeah, I was yeah. just having fun with these kids just trying to, 
live on the precipice of the fucking danger, I guess. Russell Manser has been sentenced to 12 months of prison, placed into an escort van. He's driven out to Australia's infamous Long Bay Jail. Many have described Long Bay as a frightening place. The big sandstone walls and barred windows hold a remarkable history, housing some of Australia's most feared criminals, like the infamous Russell Mad Dog Cox, another bank-robbing Russell who spent 11 years on the run and was in fact the first ever to escape Long Bay. Drug smuggler, armed robber and murderer, Neddy Smith, who spent decades behind bars with most of it being served in Long Bay, which is in fact where he would die in September of 2021. Arthur Neddy Smith, 76, died in hospital at Long Bay Jail at 5.20pm yesterday, jailed in November 1987, serving life sentences for two murders. Long Bay was no stranger to violence and massive riots throughout the 70s, 80s and 90s. Been expecting some sort of trouble at Long Bay. 40 or so prisoners started climbing a wire fence inside the compound. They hurled bottles and bricks as they went. Breaking news now of a disturbance at Long Bay Jail in Sydney. On your screens you're going to see is the helicopter footage from above the Long Bay prison. The police were seen firing multiple rounds of tear gas in the lockdown yard. Yesterday's riot at Long Bay Jail is believed to have started after guards disrupted an attempt to smuggle in drugs. And at just 17, Russell, still a child, was off to this man's world. However, youngsters who were sent to Long Bay were not placed in general population. They were put into a protection wing. If you're a prison informer, a child molester, rapist, young and good-looking, or just simply can't survive in the main jail, this is where you come to serve your time. It's called protection, a wing that's completely separate from the main prison. Cockroaches crawling all over the place, and what do we get? Nothing. Why are you, the worst why are you in here? Just for car stealing. But why are you in protection? Because I'm a young black. Because he's a sex object to a lot of older, older prisoners. That's why. This is what these places are. They're places where they put society's mistakes. Which, ironically, was the most dangerous place they could have been housed. And they housed us in what's called one wing protection of Central Industrial Prison. And at the time, the Central Industrial Prison holds some of the most dangerous men in Australia. But where they housed us was in a protection wing for our own protection. And they housed us with the worst degenerates in Australia. I was going to say, so, ironically, they put you in with the most horrendous human beings. You probably would have been yeah. safer in with the other guys. We would have been way safer in the mainstream prison because a lot of people from Mount Druitt were there, and, you know, in particular the bank robbers and those sort of blokes that I'd looked up to, and we would have been really well looked after. But um, some sort of madness, and uh, in their madness, they put us in the most dangerous place they could put us in, that was with pedophiles. And um, on my first night, they put me in a cell with uh, two convicted pedophiles. They'd, so I, was, I had a, a piece of foam mattress on the floor. When the door shut, the officers said to them two blokes, have fun tonight, boys, and walked away giggling their heads off. They thought it was quite funny. And um, anyway, I was sexually abused by both of them on that first night there. And um, man, I was like, far out. Like, you know, you, your self-worth is diminished. Uh, the, you know, what's going on in your head, how you're self-talking, that sort of stuff. Is it really good at that stage of what you're thinking of yourself? And... Um, 
So the next day I come out and um, the bloke I was being pinched with, he'd been sexually abused by some pedophiles as well. And um, we got there and I was a whole heap of kids, but all them kids were there. They were there because, like when I say 10, there was about 10 of us. And that all been escaping from the boys' homes and everything like that. And there was just no justification to have us there other than, um, you know what I mean, this deterrent-type sentencing. So that's night one and you've got 12 months ahead yeah. of you. How, how do you even contemplate, if, if that's night one, you've got a, a year of this shit. Yeah. Like, what, I mean, what? I don't even know how you contemplate what's going to be going on for the next year. Yeah. Well, it was, it was prolific then, you know. I never, it happened more than once. And, uh, you know, and then a negrophiliac, a person who had sex with dead bodies, introduced me to heroin. Like, when I think about it, like, he told me, he goes, so this is heroin. And it was sort of like a date, like, and, and told us, you know, when you get out, you go to Cabramatta and this is how you buy it, this is how you go about it. And so it's just like he was planning my life out, this devil, you know. And, um, and I liked how it. Heroin made me feel. It made me feel numb, and it made me feel warm, and it just nothing else mattered. The sexual abuse and that at that stage didn't matter, you know, as long as I was on that. And uh, so, you know, I chased it. And it was a feeling I chased for a long, long time. Russell would eventually be moved back to a boys' home prior to his eventual release. But with the nightmares of his abuse and his new heroin addiction, it wouldn't be long before he was on his way back to prison. What happened was that back then it was 12 months and because of remissions at the time, you had to serve eight months. But after about four months, they sent us back to uh, Mount Penang Boys' Home where I should have been in the first place. And uh, a bit of stuff going on in there. A lot of the staff were abusing uh, young fellas and that, but they just sort of kept me away from it because, you know what I mean, because I guess they knew that I was willing to fight at this stage and I, I would have fucking done whatever I could like that. was Even towards the end at the, at the jail, I started to fight these blokes and, and us young fellas sort of formed a group to start bashing them and that. So we sort of we protected each other from the abuse. So I went back there. I, 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 done, I ended up getting out of the boys' home and... Um, you know, and my parents moved to a place near Cabramatta, you know, and um, so I, I started going to Cabramatta every day and scoring heroin and then I ended up with my first heroin habit and I, mean, I didn't know what hit me, you know, and um, like that withdrawals from it. And, you know, when you, you in withdrawals, the, the trauma itself hitting your face, the front, and you're, you're feeling physically shit and mentally, you know, the tapes are playing and the nightmares are on in your head and... Um, yeah, it was crazy. It was a crazy time. And I had this thing in me that I just didn't understand. I was fucking sad. I was suicidal. I was depressed. I was I had anxiety. I had all these things. But I didn't know how to not label. All I knew was all these things were in me and I, I, I was lost. I didn't know what it was. I didn't know how to identify it. But all I knew is I had a shot of heroin. All of them did, went. Yeah. All of them went. In an instant, and, um, it was all gone. Yeah. You know, and I'd stayed out of a bit of trouble for a little bit. You know, I tried working and I tried getting normal and everything like that. I'd get off the heroin and I'd go back to using it one day a week and then two days a week. And then, you know, but when I turned 18, I um, I had a full-on habit and I started doing breaking out of the city equivalent. There was a place called Grace Brothers at the time, but now it's called David Jones. It was a department of stores where you can buy everything from. And so I got pinched for breaking into about six of them. I was sentenced to 11 years prison with a non-parole period of four years. And when I got sentenced, I went to a, a mainstream prison. Total different story. Yeah. No sexual abuse, <clears throat> no nothing. Fully protected. All the mountain drill blokes grabbed us, you know, looked after us. And um, 
And um, there was a tower of a man called Gary Stokes. He was just so good to us young blokes, so protective of us. And if someone even looked like walking near us, it was like a big mother hen. He'd just fucking growl at him and they'd stay away. He was like six foot seven, 120 kilos, a monster. Really protective. And that's where you put them sort of kids. You don't put them around pedophiles. You put them around blokes like him. Again, back in prison, there was no talk of rehabilitation. The only education Russell was getting was a better education in crime. And more specifically, robbing banks. In prison, it's like water finds its own level. Like drug smugglers hang around drug smugglers. Arm robbers hang around arm robbers. People who steal cars and so on. Each gang hangs around each other. Doesn't matter where you're from. You hang, they're your people. They're your tribe. And um, and you're swapping walk of war stories. And um, you know, and, and I used to just love sitting there listening to all the bank robbery stories. And that was like something out of a fucking movie. I just and I could sit there and visualize doing it and go, yeah. And then, you know, and, and they knew. There was a few ones that knew and they, and they told me, you know, they, they said, if you're going to rob a bank, the objective is, you know, don't make people panic, don't yell and scream and shout and like fucking shoot and things like you see in the movies. The objective is getting out quick as can without hurting anyone because you're fucking threatening to hurt anyone or you try to hurt someone. What's going to happen is going to panic and someone might get shot, someone might get stabbed and you might get fucking tackled and fucking arrested. Russell is back on the streets and on parole. And funnily enough, it would be on one of his scheduled parole appearances to check in that he would meet a man who would become his accomplice in his first bank robbery. Part of my parole conditions were, were, weren't to associate with other criminals. You know, but I'd go to parole to visit parole. And here all these blokes are and we're swapping phone numbers and met up with one of the boys and you know, we got talking and we said, well, I bet we rob a bank, you know? And he said, yeah. And I said, yeah. And he'd robbed banks before. And, you know, one of the things what one of our boys told me, like, and then said, Russell, you really know your stuff when you can rob them on your own. So I said to old mate, you know, the bloke who I'd done it with, I said, you just drive the car, I'm going to do this on my own. Never got a gun that time, but went and got a big, massive knife. And um, so I rocked in this bank. It was Commonwealth Bank at Gordon on the north shore of Sydney. And, you know, I just, I said, I'm not here to hurt anyone. I didn't even show the knife, to be quite honest. I just had my hand on it in the bag which could have indicated it was a gun or a yeah, knife. It didn't, yeah. You know, there was no real visual thing of any, but say, so people make the assumptions, they see the balaclava, they see, see the hand in the bag, and they assume that I'm armed. And, um, you know, I robbed that bank, I got about $17,500, and, um, and then I just, and I was hooked on the feeling. It wasn't hooked on the feeling of overpowering people or anything like that, it was hooked on the feeling of getting that money and not having to struggle. That's what it was. Not having to wait, like no one, you know, that would have been, I would have been, I would have got eight and a half grand out of that because I would have split with my mate. And the way I looked at it was like it was legal. So I can do as many of these as I want. If I want to rob a bank a day, I can earn fucking 10, 20 grand a day. That's how my, my, you know, my, the narrative in my head was. And, um, were you still, so, did you still have the drug problem at this stage as well? So you was, uh, yeah, that's when I was kicking off. Right. So, so this, this was paying for that habit as well. Yeah, yeah. You know, and the thing about what I liked about it is I had enough money to pay for the drugs, buy nice cars, have a nice place, eat at good restaurants and all that sort of stuff. So I wasn't going to be that junkie, suppressed and living in a fucking a car or whatever. I was going to be that bloke who could sort of do it in style and um, it just escalated it. And Escalate it did, as Russell hits multiple banks, perfecting his work each time, and each time getting more and more money. At one stage, getting as much as $110,000 from one bank. 
However, it was during one of these robberies that they would come unstuck, as one of the guys Russell was working with has an issue with his balaclava and getting it on in time for the robbery. Russell knew this was going to cause problems. I knew they were watching, the coppers were watching me and I, I, and I, and I went away for a bit because I, I told the boys, I said, mate, I'm being, and I stopped doing it for a while. When I say a while, about four months. One of my mates escaped from prison. The funny thing is, so he escaped from prison. I'm reading it in the paper about my mate escaping from prison. I'm with my girlfriend at the time. I said, I'll go find him. And she was a mate. She was a school teacher. She said, what do you mean you'll go find him? I said, oh, I know where he is. And she said, what do you mean you'll know where he is? I said, yeah, yeah I know where he is. And uh, she goes, the coppers are all looking for him and you can find him like that. I said, yeah. First door I knocked on, he answers the door. He goes, fuck, you took your time getting here, didn't you? And first thing he says to me, he says, mate, let's rob a bank. I said, fuck it, let's go, you know. So he's an escapee from prison. And um, so me and him on the Monday went and done one. Yeah, I mean, there was nothing in the back of your mind thinking robbing a bank with a, a guy who's just escaped from prison, <laughs> this could, could go badly. There was no fear of going back to prison. You know, you don't ever do anything if you think you're going to get caught. There's always this thing in your head that you think you're invincible and you're not going to get caught. Yeah, you know? right. I sort of spun him out because we'd come out of a bank and there was another one across the road and I said, let's get that as well. And he goes, nah, nah, and he's grabbing me. He said, nah, I said, fuck it, let's get We've got plenty of time there. We couldn't hear sirens or anything coming as an indicator. And if you didn't do hear the sirens, you've still got a bit of time. And um, and um, I said, uh, he said, John, I said, oh, fucking, I was disappointed. But it was only like about a week after that that um, the coppers turned up. And, you know, I remember this bloke scared the shit out of me because he turned up and he had, um, he had grey, he was just turned up on his own and he had grey overalls on. When I look back on it, they must not have thought I was that dangerous or anything like that because they, you know, normally in a situation like that, they'd spend, you know, a tactical response group or something yeah, like that. Yeah, all guns blazing, ready to go. Yeah, and, and overalls and fucking balaclavas and all that. But anyway, so this one black old bloke turned up and he said, hey, Russell, how are you? And as soon as I said, yeah, I'm good, I confirmed who I was. He pulled a gun on me and he said, get on the ground and um, – and it wasn't even a police issue gun, so I was scaring the shit out of me. I was thinking, fuck, is this bloke here to kill me or what? You know, I, I thought. And um, and then all of a sudden the cop cars all bounced into my driveway and and this is where the fun begins. So, you know, that, that, they were some really fucking hectic coppers. They were gangsters. They were proper, fully fucking fledged gangsters. And all they wanted to know was how much money I had and where was it. And, um, and um, you know, and they did eventually find 30000 They split it up between them and kept it, you know, and... Um, I had a really good clothes collection and they were trying on my clothes and even the shoes I had on my feet, they were sizing them up. They're going to go, yeah, Jesus Christ. I'll have them. I said, no, you fucking won't. I said, you've got so much. I said, just fucking let me have one pair of shoes out of everything. You know? All right, I'll let you one pair of shoes. And um, so I often went to jail, you know, and um, I, I really was in a bad way physically. You know, I um, withdrawn from a pretty, like about a twelve, fifteen hundred dollar a day heroin habit. Yet again, back behind prison walls, and this time suffering from the effects of withdrawals from his heroin addiction, it would be another prisoner that would show Russell some tough love and be the catalyst to get him off heroin for the first time. There was a guy there called Kevin Holland, one of the hardest men in the prison system, and um, Kevin loved me like a dad. You know, and he'd seen me in really good physical condition. He'd seen me really fit. And he, you know, he trained me for boxing and stuff like that. And I broke his heart and I could see him. Like, he wasn't one of those blokes that would show much emotion. And I had this shirt on, he picked me up. He said, get on your feet. And I couldn't fucking walk, let him run. He goes, you're going down to the oval. He said, you're going to run. And he said, if you stop, he said, I'm going to bash you. And, um, and I just fucking trotted around this oval, like just shuffling my feet, vomiting and fucking. And he'd be around the other side of the oval saying, no, you fucking stop. 
and he fucking stopped, you know. And every day he'd come and get me, I'd be trying to hide from him and fuck, he'd find me and go, no, let's go. And he'd just fucking grab me by the jumper and walk me down the aisle and say, get going, you know. And, you know, it was much the amusement the whole job, but, you know. But what everyone was aware of that Kevin really loved me and he said, you know, he was like a father figure and he had to break his, and one of my mates said, you broke his heart, him seeing you like that, you know. And, and after about four or five days when I was coming good, he said, they never let me fucking see you like that again. Because next time I'll fight, I won't just bash you, I'll kill you. He said, I'll put you out of your misery. So, um, you know, that play, play, played a big part of my life. So I decided, you know, uh, there was no drugs for me and I, I, I decided, you know, I was going to have to escape because the nightmares were horrendous of the abuse and the, 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 the trauma really kicked in and um, went about training, you know. And I told this old Special Forces guy that what I wanted to do and he said, yeah, sweet, this is how we'll do it. And he designed a training program for us. And- so Russell starts training. But he wasn't just training for the health benefits. Russell at the time believed he was looking at a minimum 10-year stretch inside this time. And it's time, he says, he wasn't prepared to do. So he was training for a specific date. He had four months before he was to be taken back to court for sentencing. And it was here, at the court appearance, that he was going to escape. It was four months until I was going to go to court at a certain court, cancer court in, in Sydney, which was the perfect opportunity to escape because they opened the escort van and unloaded you on the street to walk into the police station, and that's all you needed. That, that barrier, no barrier there yeah. to sort of, sort of go, and um, you know, and you know, we're ready, we're good to go. And on the last minute, he said, "I think I've come up with a master plan." And I said, "What is it?" He said, "Yeah." And he's got, he pulls out a bag of salt and said, "Put this in your hand." He said, walk up to someone and throw that in their eyes unexpectedly. And um, he said, see what they do. And, uh, and I'd done it. And the first thing the person done was cover their face up like that. Yeah. Because they didn't know it was bleach or didn't know what it was. All I knew was it stung their eyes. And, and I apologised to my mate. said, oh, mate, I'm just doing something. And I, what I've done it, the bloke, yeah, what the fuck is that? <laughs> and I said, oh, man, I apologise. Give me a hug. I said, man, I just, I'm just trying something. I said, and, he, and I said, you'll see, you'll see in the next few days what I've been trying. And um, he said, that's all you need, mate. He said, all you need is that one split second. So you come off the prep back of the prison van, you throw the salt in the copper's eyes, and it's going to give you the time you need, and it's just one second to sidestep around and take off, you know. And um, and I told the copper, when we're jumping on the van, I said, oh, I'm not really well. And he goes, yeah, it's all right. He said, you'll get to see the doctor. Now I thought, well, I wouldn't see the doctor when I got there. And just cheering me up to get me on that fucking van at all costs. And um, when I came off the van, we had because back in the day, everyone had handcuff keys, right? So I put you on a prison van. So you get on a van, someone pulls a handcuff key out of their mouth and takes it off, and just you take your handcuffs off. When you're about to get to where you go, you put them back on, you know. And um, just blokes would be smoking cigarettes, and no one wanted handcuffs on the back of them. But everyone, so I had a handcuff key, and I've come off, and I've had a handcuff one off and one wrapped around my knuckle. And I've just went fucking, I've spun out the copper, threw a handful of salt in his eyes and done exactly what I needed him to do. He covered his eyes on, which allowed me to go bang, sidestep around him and hit the road. But not only fucking one of us, four of us got around him and got out on the road. And um, and um, we started jumping some fences. And there was meant to be a car. One of the boys was meant to park the car in a certain spot for us to jump into and drive away and it wasn't there. So we made our way there and then we realised we just got to, keep jumping fences and we're jumping and jumping and jumping fences and we come across this bloke painting the house and um, and there was a car right out the front and I 
knocked on the door with handcuffs hanging off my hand. And I said, is that your car? And he goes, yeah. Spoke perfect English, this guy. He goes, yeah, yeah. And I said, no, I'm in a bit of trouble. I said, but we'll just we'll get your car, whether you like it or not. And it was easy way and a hard way. We weren't going to hurt him, but, you know, we just had to make that threat. And he goes, yeah, yeah, no worries. And he come out. And this car had every fucking kill switch and club block and fuck it. It was the biggest shit box in the whole area. We could not pick the biggest shit box. And he took about six things off, popped the bonnet up, flicked a few switches and put something back on and, and waved off, waved us off, wished us all the best of luck. And uh, funny thing, because he was on the news that night with fucking neck brace on saying they punched me with an interpreter. <laughs> and they punched me, they kicked me. I was scared. Bit of an insurance life. scam going on. Yeah. <laughs> I never even got charged for that. Coppers seen a straight through that and um, even said it. And they said, oh, he was a scam artist, that bloke. You have one minute remaining. This is part one of the story of former Australian bank robber Russell Manser. Coming up in part two, Russell, still on the run, robs another bank and then he's off to Perth. But we never got challenged over there one bit, you know, and um, it's not like it is now. It's not like with social media, that your, pla- your face is plastered everywhere. Yeah. It's like we wouldn't have even been in the newspapers over there. Russell would eventually for a short period of time get his life back on track. Although, with the demons of his past having not been addressed, it wasn't long before he was back inside a prison. This time, was going to try and end it all. And then I went to the prison with every intention of killing myself. I just made peace with death, you know. I, I thought my life was over. Next time on One Minute Remaining. One Minute Remaining is a Mashed Pumpkin production, created, hosted and produced by Jack Lawrence. Audio and sound design by Jack Lawrence and Dom Evans of Earsay. 